your host, Soraya Sinozia, and this is Diaspora and Development, where we give voice to people of the diaspora working in international development. My guest today is Dave Fisame, founder and executive director of Basketball to Uplift the Youth, better known as BAL for its acronym in Haitian Creole, a nonprofit organization that uses basketball as a tool to educate and mentor Haitian youth. BAL just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Dave is a graduate of Harvard University, where he obtained a master's degree in human development and psychology. Dave is also a Yale University graduate, where he obtained a bachelor's degree in political science. In addition to being the founder and executive director of BAL, he is also the founder and president of Dali Real Production, a multimedia company that produces projects on Haiti. Dave started his career in international development, working with the UNDP as a partnership analysis, and also working with the United Nations Foundation, serving as a Haiti project manager for the Clean Cooking Alliance. In 2019, Dave left the development world to concentrate on BAL. Dave, you started out your career with a bang, working with UNDP. What attracted you to the field of international development? Tell us about your career trajectory. Well, I wouldn't say that I was uh, per se attracted to the field of international development. Um, I was more so attracted to the idea of helping my uh, native country, Haiti. Right. Okay. Um, that was my biggest desire coming out of college. I just wanted to find a way to, to go back home and, uh, and help. And I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity with UNDP to, to do so. So, uh, yeah, my overall objective was just to go back home and help. And from, from that point on, you know, I came back to Haiti and I uh, started my own nonprofit, Ball uh, Basketball Ponca de la Jeunesse, as a way to help youth in my neighborhood of uh, Matissan, uh, which is one of the most uh, you know, disadvantaged urban communities in Port-au-Prince. Yeah, so I didn't just stay confined to the world of international development, but I you know, really just wanted to help in any way that I could. Two uh, employment opportunities I've really had in international development. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because that wasn't really my, my focus. It was just, you know, a way that I was able to, to help Haiti at that time. Perfect. And why did you start BAL? What motivated you? Yeah, so as, as someone who grew up in Maltisa, when I went back, you know, over a decade later, I noticed that a lot of the people that I knew growing up weren't there anymore. And you know, folks who had really um, made something of themselves, as soon as they did so, they left the neighborhood and they didn't come back. And so uh, there was a dearth of leadership and mentorship and guidance for the young people there. And I noticed that a lot of the youth were into basketball. And as I had to work as director of operations of my college basketball team before, so I had experience and a passion for the sport, I decided to start ball as a way to use basketball as a tool to mentor and educate youth in, in my neighborhood. So it started pretty small with just 30 kids in the beginning 10 years ago now, back in 2013, I'm using my own money. Mm -hmm. And uh, 10 years later now, we have a staff of 18 and I'm doing this full time, and we have 150 youth, boys and girls, that we're working with um, year round, three times a week. Can you tell us a little bit about Matisan? Not a lot of people know about Matisan. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, quite a prolific community um, that has changed over time. So, if you could tell us a little bit about Matisan, how it was when you were growing up, and how it's yeah. changed 
Marcy Sosa community has been dramatically transformed because of the movement of folks from the Haitian countryside to Port-au-Prince, a movement that really, uh, really took to new heights starting with the 1960s. And my parents were both part of that wave of folks leaving the countryside to come to to Port-au-Prince and um, they settled, they both settled in, in Montesquieu. And because of that demographic shift of a lot of folks leaving the countryside to come to Port-au-Prince and living in Montesquieu, then the dynamics began changing in the neighborhood. At the time, it was really a solidly middle-class neighborhood, you know, in the 60s, uh, 70s, up until really most of the 80s. But by the time I was born in the 80s, it was really becoming a working-class neighborhood with a lot of folks who had just recently moved in from outside of Port-au-Prince. And so by the time, you know, I was growing up in Marxist it already had the reputation of just being a, a, a poor neighborhood. But in spite of it being poor, the security situation was more or less stable, not unlike any other neighborhood in, in Port-au-Prince mm-hmm. in that sense. You know, I remember as a kid going to school, I went to one of the top Catholic uh, schools in, in Port-au-Prince. I'd be reluctant to say I was from Marxist more so because of the poverty and the you know, of the uh, flooding that the neighborhood was known for when there'd be heavy rain and folks not wanting to go to Matisun because their cars get stuck in the mud and they were just a terrible situation every time there was um, major rain, right? And that was more so what Matisun was known for. But um, in recent years, over the past um, 15 years or so, it's been the development of a lot of gang activity in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. which uh, took to new heights, over the past uh, five years or so, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, where now the, the the community is completely controlled by by gangs, mm-hmm. with uh, different gangs, uh, some of them being rival groups occupying different parts of Martisan, and because of that, of the war that started out between some of the rival gangs in July 2021. You've had over 20,000 people have had to evacuate the neighborhood. So it's a very tough situation right now. And for us, we started Baal and Martisan, and many of our kids and staff members um, have become refugees in their own in their own country um, because of that situation in Martisan right now. And they've had to relocate to, to other neighborhoods and towns because of that. My parents are from Haiti, as you well know, and I've lived in Haiti, worked in Haiti. The situation of security wasn't... A major issue when I was living in Haiti, I've lived in other countries where I felt a little bit less secure. Do you have an idea of what happened, what contributed to this rise of this gang takeover? Yeah. Well, if you go back to the late 80s and early 90s and you were reading the literature, let's take the 1990 presidential election in Haiti. You had the top two candidates were Jean-Bertrand Aristide and Mok one thing that these two candidates had in common is if you read the literature from uh, their campaigns is they all explain how dire the outlook would be for Haiti 10 to 20 years mm-hmm. from 1990 mm-hmm. if significant measures weren't taken by the Haitian government. Much more of an econ- economic approach. Exactly. Well, and the economics has impact on the social as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if people you know, don't have money to feed themselves, take care of themselves, then you're going to have gangs. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much what, what's happened, right? And mm-hmm. we had to create, you know, a certain amount of jobs. We had to open a certain amount of schools and provide free schooling 
and support agricultural development. And we didn't do any of those things. Mm -hmm. That's what's resulted. Mm -hmm. I think also it might be a situation of impunity in terms of the rich are so rich in Haiti um, and your level of aspirations. um, I'm a first generation immigrant in Canada. Um, my parents did go to university, et cetera, but I know of others who are first generation and by in their same generation, they get to their aspirations. And, um, in Haiti, it seems, um, you know, people remember Haiti and they said, oh, you know, life was beautiful, et cetera. And I always think to myself, life was beautiful for a percentage of people. You are so on point. Rare people have heard share the same viewpoint because that's what I always say. I always say that it's really terrible for us to say that life in Haiti was ever good. It's a disrespect to the majority of the population that's always lived in poverty in Haiti. Yes. You know, if you're looking at the life expectancy and access to school and health outcomes, Haiti's actually made a lot of progress. A lot of people might not think of that, but Haiti has actually made a lot of progress over the past 50 years. So in, 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 in that sense, you know, life has improved for Haitians. Haitians are living longer than they were back in 1970, when a lot of people were saying that life was uh, beautiful in Haiti. Life was uh, beautiful, was great for the wealthy, the well-to-do, right? Mm-hmm. But for it the was, masses, it's always been tough. Yeah, and it and it also then became tough for the people who were socially active, intellectuals, etc. Um, exactly. A lot of them had to leave during the Duvalier mm-hmm. dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. And that was really the beginning of the mass brain drain that Haiti's been dealing with ever since. So, and, and, you know, so thank you for telling us about why you think, um, you know, you, gangs uh, have have risen in, 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 in Haiti, but also the access to guns, the access mm-hmm. to, to the weapons, where, where do you think that comes from? Well, that comes directly from the economic elites and corrupt politicians. Because for a 25-year-old gang leader and village de Dieu to have access to military-grade weapons coming in from the U.S., he can't do it by himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to have support from either members of the economic elite or corrupt politicians or both, right? And so I'm happy to see that your home country, Canada, has actually taken the leadership in terms of identifying and sanctioning some of these corrupt business leaders and politicians who've been um, supporting the gangs. Interesting move. That's a very interesting move. I'm... Yeah, and the sad thing is the Haitian government hasn't done anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's extremely important for us to identify these folks and make sure that actions are taken to not allow them to continue doing this nefarious stuff that they're doing that's negatively impacting Haiti. Because even if you get rid of all the major gang leaders right now, the people who are funding them and allowing them to do their work will just find other people to replace them, right? So you have to attack the the issue at its roots. Okay. So you started your nonprofit, which is not an easy task. Not only you have to be constantly fundraising money for your programs, as you've explained, you know, BAL will be uh, celebrate 10 years in July. Um, and, you know, you have to fundraise for salaries for yourself and yourself. Um, and then you decide, okay, not only am I going to start BAL, but I'm going to leave and I'm going to concentrate only on BAL and Dalibiel. Why? And how did you do it? Um, 
Yeah. Well, as, as you know, we met in DC. So I had, um, after graduate school, I, um, I left the UNDP to go to graduate school in the US. Um, and after graduate school, I got an opportunity to uh, work at the Haitian embassy in DC. Like I told you, my reason for working for UNDP wasn't per se because I was attracted to the field of international development, but it was out of a desire to help my country. And so the embassy offered me uh, another opportunity to help Haiti in a different way. And I seized on that opportunity and I moved to DC to take on that role. And it was a tremendously gratifying experience that allowed me to help our country by representing Haiti in different meetings in Washington, be it bilateral meetings with the US government or uh, multilateral meetings with institutions such as the CARICOM, the OAS, the World Bank, IDB, <laughs> et cetera. Um, and so uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity in that sense. And also, it was a, a, a great opportunity when I pivoted to the role of Director of Culture and Education at the Embassy to really allow folks to know more about Haiti's beautiful history and culture. There are many challenges with working for the Haitian government, uh, one of them being that you're not paid as a diplomat working in D.C. should be paid. But again, you know, I didn't make the choice uh, for money. I just made the, the that decision out of a desire to, to help uh, the country that I love. But at a certain point, I had to find another way to keep helping Haiti, but that allowed me to, to earn more, right? And so that's when I pivoted to working for the UN Foundation. I got an offer to be a project manager for a project that the Clean Cooking Alliance within the UN Foundation was implementing in, in Haiti. And this project was funded by the Canadian government, actually. Um, it's a $20 million project um, to allow Haiti to move from using wood and charcoal for cooking to using cleaner alternatives, right? And this is one of the major challenges that Haiti's been grappling with for many decades now. And um, it's a very challenging thing to do, to um get poor folks who many of them don't have any other alternatives than to gather firewood to, to cook and to get them to stop doing so and to use LPG or um, or other you know environment environmentally friendly charcoals, et cetera, right? But I always love a challenge and you know I, I thought it would be uh, you know I always see, you know, the all the possibilities, right? And I just imagine as a project manager you know, leading this project, how great it would be five years down the road to say that, hey, Haiti's completely, you know, uh, free of, uh, of uh, you know, charcoal and and, um, and people are no longer using um, firewood for cooking. <laughs> you said something key um, yeah. that attracts people, whether they go into international development voluntarily or because they have a, a motive, um, working for their country, et cetera. But you said something key. As project manager, you saw in five years that perhaps, et cetera. Is that one of the things? What happened when you were at Clean Cooking Alliance? What what made you what made you leave? And mm -hmm. did you did you see the change that you wanted um, that you were you were hoping to contribute to? Well, I left after a year. Um, I actually submitted my resignation on November 18th, uh, 2019 for, for the Haitians out there. You know, that's the uh, anniversary of the Battle of Beltia, the battle that led Haiti against independence. So that was uh, my declaration of independence, <laughs> personal, personal emancipation. <laughs> um, and I did so because, uh, one, um, 
most importantly, I knew that the project wasn't going to be able to achieve its subjective, okay. right? And it wouldn't be able to do so for many reasons. Um, one, um, the leadership of the organization didn't understand Haiti, right? Mm -hmm. I was the first Haitian that they hired to be on this project, to be a project manager. I was the only one who um, knows Haiti, who speaks French or Haitian Creole. Um, yeah. And I was only, I was also the first full-time person who was hired to be on the project, right? So you had a number of colleagues working on projects in Africa and Asia who were just part-timers on, on this Haiti project. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this Haiti project was, um, if I recall correctly, uh, the largest amount of funding that the Clean Cooking Alliance had, right? $20 million from the Canadian government. So you had a lot of folks who were um, whose salaries were being um, partially or fully paid by the project who weren't dedicating the amount of time that they should be uh, to the project, right? Um, sort of like reminiscent of the whole debacle that there was with the American Red Cross with money that was being uh, allocated to Haiti and not, you know, actually being spent on Haiti, being spent on other countries and other um, issues that the American Red Cross was uh, dealing with. And it was a very similar situation. And I remember bringing that up to the chief of staff at the time, and I didn't like her reaction at all. <laughs> and it was sort of like, hey, why are you trying to be a, a troublemaker and bring bring up this this issue? What are you trying to do here? And, you know, and I looked at it from the perspective of being a, a proud Haitian who chose the job not because I want to work in international development or because I want to work with a clean cooking alliance, but because I want to do something that helps my country. And as it was constituted, this project wasn't helping. Yeah, that's the main reason why, you know, I, I chose to, to leave um, at the project uh, as designed, um, as structured, wasn't going to help Haiti and uh, the leadership wasn't a type of leadership that would enable this project to, to do what it was supposed to do. Okay. And you pivot to Bao, as I mentioned before, it's, yeah. it takes a lot. It was very scary. You know, probably the um, bravest thing I've ever done. You have a nice salary in D.C. A UN, a UN Foundation offices are 1750 Pennsylvania Avenue from my office. I could see the White House. You know, a lot of folks would be content with just, you know, getting their uh, nice paycheck and, and, you know, going about their day. But for me, I want to do something that helps my country. And I also just don't want to be uh, associated with failure. Honestly, you know, <laughs> and, you know, for me, it wouldn't be, it's like at the end of the five years, yeah, I got paid nicely and this, but this project wasn't able to do what it was supposed to do. You know, I wouldn't, that wouldn't sit well with me. The goal of international development, I try to remind people is to improve and leave. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my mom, who's not a development specialist and hasn't worked in this area at all, always said it, you know, hey, if the blue actually get things done the way they're supposed to, they're not going to have jobs in Haiti. I've always been an optimist and I've always refrained from seeing things from that perspective. But, um, you know, when you really think about it objectively, it's the truth. Right. Uh, and like you said, that should be the goal. Right. To to make a change and, and, and leave, right? And so um, for me, I saw that with my small organization, um, in many ways I could make a bigger impact. And I was working crazy long hours, like I told you, I mean, I was the first um, full-time person that they hired to manage this massive project, right? 
And so many days I'm leaving the office at 7, 8, 9 p.m. even, right? And um, I'm getting home and it's my time when I get home just to uh, focus on ball now since I was still running ball uh, remotely. And so I'm going to bed most days at 1 a.m., 2, 2 a.m., waking up at 6 a.m. to go back to the office. It was just not sustainable. And so that I would be better served, Haiti would be better served if I just allocated of my love and passion and talents and skills to just running my own nonprofit. Perfect. So what do you recommend to people who want to make a transition like you did or who want to run, run their own nonprofit? What, what do they need to know? A lot of people, for example, yeah. say, if you do what you love, and sometimes that works, but sometimes if you do what you love may make you starve. What do you say? I would say the first thing, yeah, is to find what you love and do it. You know, you got to be realistic, right? Xanadu is a be beautiful poem, a nice vision, but you still need a sewage system to make it work, right? <laughs> so you got to be realistic. And for me, one of the first things I did was to share my plan with our donors. And I told this donor that, hey, um, I really feel like this organization could go to the next level if I'm able to fully focus my time running it on the ground in Haiti. Would you be able to fund me for two years to do that? And the donor uh, told me that they would be able to do it. And, you know, that's all I needed, right? To really be able to um, you know, get uh, my uh, myself on the ground and to, to be able to focus full-time on running the uh, running the nonprofit. So yeah, you've, you've got to be guided by your, your dreams and your ideals, but you got to be very pragmatic and have a solid plan. You know, one of the things that I did that convinced this donor to, um, to invest and, and myself and in ball was, um, I, um, after I, uh, submitted my resignation in, in November, 2019, I just spent the next couple of weeks before the end of 2019 just working on the five-year strategic plan, right? It's a pretty lengthy document, 64 pages, just to really detail all that we had been able to do with Baal from the start in 2013 up to that point in 2019 and what we hope to achieve for the 2020 to 2024 time period. That's one good thing that I learned from working in the development world is to draft good strategic plans and annual work plans and have good M&E frameworks in place. So, <laughs> so yeah. I had all that skill set to really structure everything and to make it look impressive and to allow folks to, to believe in my vision and to choose to invest in me and in the organization. Since you returned to Haiti, you've lived through a pandemic the assassination of the president of Haiti and the deterioration of the country and its takeover by gangs. How do you cope and how do the youth of bad cope? You come back home in January 2020 and Haiti stuff, but, you know, very optimistic, right? Because you're very excited about this possibility that you're going to be fully focusing on your organization and be independent and not be working for some other major organization and splitting your time. So the outlook was very optimistic on my end. But then, yeah, that, from that very first month, all the challenges, you know, internationally and locally started hitting us, you know. Um, big first shock for me was, you know, the death of Kobe Bryant that month in January 2020, and then COVID pandemic started spreading. We had opened our new office uh, headquarters in port au in that first month, January 2020. And within a couple of months, we had to shut down because of the pandemic, right? So that was a, you know, first big challenge that we had to deal with. And 
You know, luckily for us, the pandemic wasn't as challenging of a situation in Haiti as it was in the U.S. and many other countries. And by summer, um, the government had lifted most of the restrictions in terms of the curfews and the number of people who could gather together in one place. And so um, in July, we were able to open up our office again and to resume all of our activities. But then after that, then you start getting you know, spikes in kidnappings and, you know, all this gang activity with the gang fighting and um, homicides and all that. And so just very tough situation to navigate. And because of all that situation, we had to move from our original sites in both Marcissant and Cité Soleil and find um, new places to work either within those communities or near those communities to allow us to continue serving our youth because gangs had overtaken all the spaces where we had initially started working. And because um, you work with youth, you didn't get reprieves or a pass um, to be able to work at the areas that you used to have your office. So, and and Marcy Sun, we, we did initially, right? When I first moved back in 2020, pretty much the whole neighborhood of Marcy Sun was controlled by the Tibois gang. Mm-hmm. And different gangs have different philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. Some of them try to portray themselves as being the protector of the people or just uh, end places because the government isn't able to provide security and service to the people. So, and so they're there to, to uh, protect the people from rival gangs and to provide services that the government isn't providing them, right? And so that was the um, approach used by the Tibois gang. And so with that approach, they allowed us to work, you know, peacefully, right? But then when the war breaks out, that's that's the problematic aspect of it, is when you have rival gangs fighting and you're caught in between. Mm-hmm. That's what created the situation where over 20,000 people had to evacuate Marxism because you get caught in the crossfires then you know, anything can happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what forced us to leave our original site in Marxism to move to another location in downtown Port-au-Prince, not too far from Marxism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you cope? Because the leader, as you know, is asking a lot. Um, and yeah, yeah. You, you have to be the strong one to, to uh, lead everyone. Uh, you know, even uh, my wife, she personally told me that, and she's not Haitian, she said, you know, you know, if you're not scared, I'm not going to be scared. <laughs> you know, so you have a responsibility, you know, as a leader to project confidence and to have everyone believe that everything will be okay, right? And that's the biggest responsibility. And, and you know, to be honest, that's one of the main reasons I've, I've chosen to stay in Haiti. Um, because I know, you know, my mom told me that, hey, why would you leave? You know, you can still do your work remotely. It's, you know, it's the age of Zoom and, and all this. You don't have to be on the ground in Haiti. But, you know, I told her that a lot of folks, even if they tell me or they don't tell me, I know that they get hope from seeing the work that our organization is doing. And from the fact that I'm still staying here and that a lot of folks, be it our kids, our staff members, mm-hmm. you know, or some of our folks in the diaspora donating and supporting the work, they would be demoralized if, you know, I decided to just, you know, stop doing what I'm doing and pack it up and, and leave, you know? So in that sense, the work is just bigger than myself. And so I have to be strong, not only for myself, but for my family, our kids, our staff, mm-hmm. and everyone who supports the work and believes in the work. So while you're being strong, what is it What is it that you do to cope? Because one has to prioritize also their mental health. Have you anything that you're doing yeah. to cope? Yeah, my, my wife is actually quite you know, always making sure that I'm okay, asking me if I'm okay, and uh, making sure that I'm okay in that sense. And the one thing she she bought for me was a, a massage gun. So 
you know, whenever I'm feeling stressed, just take this massage gun and just massage it all over. <laughs> and, you know, uh, playing basketball too with the kids, being around the kids, you know, uh-huh. nothing gives me more energy and it just, you know, gives me perspective why the work is important and being around them, you know, and seeing firsthand the impact, the direct impact that the work is having on them, you know. Um, it just keeps me young, keeps me energized, keeps me happy, and um, yeah, keeps me moving forward. In your opinion, will things in Haiti improve, and how can they improve? Yeah, I definitely think so. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be here still if I didn't think so, right? And for me, um, you know, it's all about investing in the youth and creating opportunities for them, and that's why you know I chose to start ball and to have that focus ten years ago because I already knew back then that was the most important thing that someone could do for Haiti, right? I remember back when we started in 2013, you had about 54% of the population that's, that was under 25 years old, down to about uh, 50, 51%, but still s- significantly, uh, you know, a high the, the a proportion of uh, young people that we have in this country. And so it's all about creating opportunities for them, creating pathways for them to succeed and to take the leadership away from uh, those folks who've, you know, been and power and the limelight for some of them for four decades, which is crazy to me, you know, that you've been involved in politics in this country for that long and you haven't contributed to anything and you're still around. So, yeah, we need to kick some of these people out and make way for the new generation. And that's that's what our work and our focus is, is on to, um, you know, always tell folks from not a basketball club. We just use basketball as a way to grab the kids' attention, and once we grab their attention and provide them with um, educational opportunities, um, uh, leadership uh, training opportunities, right? Basic life and life skills and employability skills, scholarships, you know, to allow them to really become um, educated uh, citizens who can uh, contribute to change and hate. Can you share with us any success stories from Bob? Oh, so many of them. Give us some highlights. <laughs> yeah. For example, we have one of our kids who started with us in 2013, um, Juni He's uh, one of our scholarship recipients who's currently in his third year of uh, university studying accounting. So he'll be finishing with his studies next year. We're yeah, very proud of him. To me, it's kind of crazy to just think about a kid who started with you. Um, and now you know, one year removed from being a university graduate and you've completely covered the cost of his university studies. So for me, that's some major pride right there, just to have been able to accompany that young man from um, his um, uh, early teen years to now he's um, almost a university graduate. You know, we not only encourage our kids, you know, in basketball and education, but, you know, through the arts as well. We have many kids who are talented artists. One of the uh, things that we've been able to do is to produce songs and music videos for some of our artists, right? Um, so that's that's been another success for us. We've had some of our kids have had videos with hundreds of thousands of views uh, on social media. So uh, that's also been a, a major uh, form of happiness for us. And we actually have two of them who are aspiring filmmakers. And they just completed filming of a short film. Mm-hmm. And that we're going to be premiering uh, next month as part of Ball's 10th anniversary activity. So we've had a lot of success in many different ways uh, over the past um, few years. That's great to hear. Is that through your 
other um, independent project, Dali Wheel? Or? Exactly. Uh, yeah, joint, jointly. Um, you know, I'm really into media mm-hmm. and the idea of using media to tell our stories and to change the narrative, right? And so, you know, I've been blessed to be able to sort of like merge these two um, interests of mine together just to be able to help our kids who are interested in media, uh, to help them through um, my production company while also having Val uh, fund those projects for, for them. Are there any programs, organizations, or anything that you see in international development that's caught your attention and that you see working? There's a lot of great folks and organizations doing great work in Haiti. Now, I wouldn't say if you would necessarily categorize them as being international development, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Since they are local organizations, but they are uh, intervening in some of the areas that international development organizations typically intervene in, in terms of education, for instance, right? The first organization to actually provide grant funding to Baal in 2014 was FOCAL, uh, local, Very um, okay. Very yeah, a local Haiti organization. And they gave us our first grant in 2014. Nine years later, um, they're our biggest um, donor locally. Um, still supporting our work. So we're very grateful for their support. And um, probably the institution that's doing the best work in Haiti overall, um, even considering the Haitian government. Uh, I have a friend who actually calls FOCAL the minist- the actual, the real Ministry of Culture of Haiti because they do more to support uh, <laughs> Haitian culture than the actual Ministry of, uh, of Culture. Um, so that's you'll see my if people saw my face, you could see that I uh, what I think of Focal. I think it's a great organization. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so that's another thing that gives me a lot of hope, right? We still have the bad people getting all the headlines, but there's a lot of good people doing good work here. Many of them you know, silently uh, in Haiti. That's one of the reasons why I still have hope for this country. What's the role that the diaspora can play? People of the diaspora contribute through remittances, they try to help mm-hmm. their communities, but some of us are at a, at a loss of what to do. What do you think? What role do you think mm-hmm. that that play? Well, I always say that the um, remittances figures is a bit misleading and, you know, someone who works for the IDB, I think you could def- definitely understand that you know, remittances aren't investment that's being provided by the diaspora. Uh, overwhelmingly, it's um, money that family members in the diaspora are sending to family members in Haiti just to allow them to survive or to pay for their kids' schooling, right? And so it's not necessarily money that's going to, you know, creating jobs in Haiti uh, and things of that nature. So I think one way that the diaspora can, can help Haiti is to ensure that, you know, money is not only going to support the livelihoods of, of, of folks in Haiti, but also go towards real investments. And, you know, one, one thing I think that folks have been doing, you know, in the past is that you have a lot of different committees or associations established for different villages or small towns throughout Haiti. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a great approach in terms of people bringing their money together and deciding that, all right, we have our uh, remote village in the Plateau Central that doesn't have running water, doesn't have a good school for, for kids. And we're going to, you know, put our money together and, and create, um, you know, um, a school or, or to do anything else that could help with, uh, the community developing and, and, uh, moving forward. So I think that's, you know, that's sort of action that collective action that the diaspora needs to take to have a bigger impact, um, in Haiti. What's next for you? 
what's next for me? Um, huh. Um, I feel like my, my work with Ball isn't done yet. I feel like we um, still have a ways to go. Um, I could maybe envision myself transitioning out of Ball within the... We're wrapping up our uh, five-year strategic plan next year. Maybe in that second phase of the next five-year plan, I might uh, exit. But I feel like we, I still have to have a lot of work to do to um, strengthen the organization and put it in a better place to, uh, to continue its work beyond my time as uh, executive director. And from that point on, I mean, aside from helping you, my real passion, as I mentioned, is media. So I really would want to maybe focus more on doing projects that tell our stories, be they feature films or documentaries, music videos. And I just, I have a lot of fun uh, doing that kind of work. Um, so I think that's one thing that I would really want to focus on. And I also want to be able to just be more actively involved in terms of shaping this uh, country's future. So uh, not necessarily as an elected official, but, you know, I feel like pol politically, even if behind the scenes, you know, I want to get involved, identifying good leaders and helping them. You know, we have some of our kids who I think would be some great leaders for, for this country, you know, 10, 15 years down the road to just, you know, creating a pathway for good people to, to lead this country. Uh, in honor of one of my favorite podcasts, Unlocking Us, which is hosted by the incomparable Brene Brown, please share with us the last TV show that you binged and love, your a concept that you'll never forget, and your Get Up and Dance song. Huh. Last TV show that I binged and loved. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, you know, a creature of habit. Once I love something, I just like go back to it. Like, I really love the the Last Dance documentary series that Netflix did on, on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And uh, I'm currently right now on my fourth time watching the whole thing over again. You and I are similar. You and I are similar. The things that I rewatch sometimes, I realize I'm repeating the things that are being said, and I'm like, maybe it's time to find something new. Yeah, but, yeah, but the great thing about it, though, is, uh, you know, you maybe see things in a different way or you catch something that you didn't catch the first time. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I really enjoy it. I remember when it first came out, my wife and I were just like, uh, I think in the States it might have come out like one episode at a time, but in Haiti, Netflix allowed you to see it all at once. And we just, yeah, just like probably watch it like in like uh, all 10 episodes in the span of like two days. <laughs> yeah, Last Dance. <laughs> a concert that you'll never forget? Concert that I'll never forget. After almost nine years of um, not being in Haiti, I uh, came back to the country in December 2008, and my um, godmother um, and her husband um, took me to a New Look and Tibais concert mm -hmm. at uh, Falkanasuk. You know, this is sprawling park. You know, and. Uh, thousands of people there and it was just it's amazing to be back in Haiti after being gone for so long and being so homesick and to be back with my people listening to two great bands and just like being around the Haitian uh, you know energy and the vibe it was just great memory <laughs> I think is a great place for concerts and and it's really yeah it's beautiful I can I can feel it I went to see Kassav and Tabu Combo. And Tabu Combo, I was there too. <laughs> yeah, and that, I was so excited I couldn't be calm. So it was a, it was a great concert. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. 
Yeah, your get up and dance song. What makes you always dance? Um, can pass with you, book one experience. Of course, of course. Yeah, I might be you know, feeling oh now and just you can't hear that song and just not get up and just like well, you know. Yeah. yeah. Give them a dance and jump up and down, right? That's a good <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much for your time. This was great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.